Hello, this is Toby. Now, in a break from our usual programming, today I'm sharing with you an episode from what I suppose you might call a sister podcast of ours, although it'll be a somewhat short-lived sister. This is episode one of a planned six-part limited series of a show from Ireland called The Trust Race. And this first episode is called Please Wear a Mask. It's created jointly by University College Dublin and the EU-funded research project Piritzia, which, by the way, we featured on this podcast way back in November 2020 when we interviewed Catherine Holst about reasons to mistrust experts. And indeed, the theme of this new show is trust in scientific expertise. Let me read you a few lines from the press release which I was sent about this show. It says... This six-part limited series delves into scandals and controversies that have impacted our trust in science, even prior to the pandemic. Through conversations with journalists, scientists, philosophers, lawyers, and activists, Shane, uh, that's the presenter, Shane Bergen, he has the kind of Irish accent that I would kill for, uh, Shane navigates the complex nature of trust, end quote. I mean, the bit about the Irish accent wasn't part of the quote, obviously. Anyway, I think the kinds of challenges that we talk about all the time here on our own podcast are clearly important elements in this show too. And that's why I'm pretty sure that you as a Science for Policy podcast listener will find it interesting. Another reason you'll enjoy this episode, I suspect, is that you will hear it's being produced by someone who actually knows what they're doing. Unlike me, at least when it comes to audio editing, it's quite a slick and professional production. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode, and if you'd like to listen to five more episodes from The Trust Race on different topics that relate to trust and expertise, you will find the link in the show notes. Okay, that's it from me. If you are celebrating Easter this weekend, have a very happy one, and normal service will resume bang on schedule with our next episode in two weeks. See you soon. This is a series about scandals and controversies that have impacted our trust in science. I'm Shane Bergen. I'm a physicist and I'm a science communicator. And I've had a career of talking to students and the public about science. And I love doing it. In recent years, though, I've recognised that while many of the big issues facing our society have a scientific component, they're not just science issues. You think about climate change, you think about biodiversity loss, or you think about new ways of generating energy. All of these things have a scientific component, but they're not just about science. They're socio-scientific. They involve people. They involve people because people have to act on those issues. They have to trust the scientist. They have to believe what the expert is saying. And that's complex. In this series, we'll explore six different controversies in science. Six times where a scandal has happened. My hope is that if we can better understand when trust is broken, our experts are not believed, our experts are not acting in the best interests of the public, that we can learn how to better approach socio-scientific issues for the future. Science stories are usually framed as unthreatening, apolitical, completely uncontroversial, and finally type stories in the news. 
this wasn't the case when it came to COVID-19 over the last few years. It was something that impacted absolutely everyone's daily lives. We all became familiar with immunologists. We became familiar with terms like antibodies and T-cells and other things that scientists would normally be speaking about. And of course, at the start, we were all very interested in masks, where to get them, how to wear them, should we wear them, did they work, etc. And of course, what made it interesting from a science communication point of view was that the science wasn't completely settled on masks at the start. It wasn't clear around how they would work and whether they would work. And so I was curious to see how journalists covered this evolving story during COVID. And I spoke to one in particular, a guy called Alec Ja at The Economist, whose coverage I thought was absolutely excellent right throughout COVID. For a long time, science journalists have always been the people who do the good news stories in newsrooms. There, as in, you know, there's a, there's a new star discovered, or a new cure for cancer, or uh, you know, some amazing thing about the world we're we're finding out. And it's generally speaking the good news stuff, and it's you know the the stuff that makes you feel better. Um, but underneath all of that. What we've been really doing is trying to understand how to read scientific papers, work out what's true very quickly, um, um, build up contacts uh, with people who spend their entire lives looking at just one molecule in the in, in a cell, so that we know uh, in this, we know who, who to trust. And when COVID came along in March, uh, February, March 2020, um, it presented initially just any other story as a science story. Here, here's some uh, case studies of um, an, a bizarre new condition, the disease that was coming out of, uh, of China. And so, you know, we covered it in this sort of sceptical way that we always cover stories, which is that this could be potentially dangerous, but, you know, not, no, no need for panic. And we're going to look for... The, scientists to tell us what's happening and we need to make sure that we're speaking to the right scientists and as the story became much much more serious and important um what we found ourselves doing as science journalists every single day was becoming uh, a core part of the newsroom out of growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the u.s here's what we know a washington state resident fell ill after returning from wuhan china where the outbreak began. Officials now say more than 400 people have been sickened and nine people have died. The World Health Organization has officially called it COVID-19. Co for corona, vi for virus, D for disease, and 19 because it started last year. One person with coronavirus in King County, Washington State has died. This now makes the first coronavirus death confirmed in the US. A woman in her 70s has become the first person with coronavirus to die in the UK. The number of people infected in the UK has jumped again to 116. What we found ourselves doing as science journalists every single day was becoming uh, a core part of the newsroom in terms of of advising which stories we should be covering, explaining things to people, um, things like what virology was, what immunology was, how how um, how tests uh, are made uh, for, for different con uh, for viruses. How do you uh, what statistics mean? You know, when someone says someone that the test uh, shows you've got this condition or that condition, what does that actually mean in terms of the statistics? Things that we don't normally have to explain to people, but, but partly because these things were all important for public health, but also because people had a lot of time to sort of read and understand detail in science stories that we normally would skip over. And so we were writing stories every single day, twice a day, to just help people to understand this, this very complex, changing world that was suddenly around them. Um, and, and it was 
it was like it was like being in the trenches. I, I, I mean, it sounds like an exaggeration to say that, but every single day we were writing that. Um, whilst also, by the way, can I just say, also living the conditions. So we as science journalists also have families and friends and uh, aging parents who were also dealing with all of this. It was intense. I, I honestly can't remember how we got through it, if I'm honest. And it feels like a long time ago, but it was actually only two and a half years ago. I think one of one of the things that struck me was how quickly things were changing, right? And how quickly the science was changing. Um, so at the beginning, we were maybe advised not to wear masks, and then we were advised to wear masks or that we mightn't wear the masks properly, etc. What was it like for you covering um, a topic like mask wearing uh, when the information and the science was changing? So mask wearing was one of these things that came up very early in the pandemic, sort of March, April, people were sort of wondering, you know, should we wear masks to prevent the spread uh, or, or, or in fact, more likely stop becoming infected from um, for, for, from the from this emerging virus? And, you know, we didn't know how the virus really spread properly. We didn't know much about how infectious it was. There were early studies, but we didn't really know much. And so mask wearing was seen as like a, you know, a one preventative thing. And um yeah, it, it became actually a microcosm for how complex it would be in the following two years of how uh, science is best communicated. So what do I mean by that? Well, when I'm normally covering a science story, I would cover a scientific paper or it's been peer reviewed in some way, um, or I've spoken to a bunch of scientists, you know, leisurely and, and given you some results, right? And I give you all the caveats and I spend some time doing that. And that's how science works. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a work in progress. But the way we present it in the media often, and the way people understand it is that these are just big facts that come from somewhere. Uh, now, in some sense, that's true because I have checked everything. And if I'm, if I'm a good journalist, I'll have checked everything. And as far as you're concerned, it is a fact. With masks, the problem was that we didn't really know if masks stopped the transmission of this virus, um, especially in the early days. We didn't really know um, what kinds of masks worked best because the research was just hadn't been done. And so when you've got the situation where there's an active need to know something and people are, around the world are waiting to know what the science says, in inverted commas, but when the science doesn't know itself, well, what do you do in that case? Well, what you can do is you can give people information as it's being developed and as, it's, as it emerges. So I think that there was some evidence to say that um, mask wearing, at, uh, remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was some evidence or the best evidence suggested that mask wearing didn't really do much difference, make much difference to, you know, whether the, the virus spread or not. And this was studies from other viruses, flu, etc. You know, and I wrote a story, remember, I'm saying this, basically that, you know, people you know, who wore masks didn't necessarily get less infected um, with flu and other things. People, you know, messed around with their masks so they're touching them all the time. So they're spreading viruses in other ways. So the best advice is that, yes, if you've got a mask, then wear it, but don't don't worry too much about it. And in fact, underneath all of that was a, a social and slightly um, commercial reason for this, which is that there weren't many masks around, you know, really good ones. And to be honest, our doctors and nurses and healthcare workers needed those masks. And so if everyone was going out to buy them, especially the really, uh, you know, the really good air, uh, the N95 masks, which, you know, prevent most, uh, you know, viruses going through, 
if everyone was going to go off and buy those for their home use, then what are these doctors going to have? I remember, do you remember everywhere in the world there were stories about doctors not having the right equipment, doctors dying, uh, nurses becoming infected. It was awful. So, you know, the, the, the advice that came from politicians and newspapers and all sorts of places was just stay off the masks, guys, you know, just to stay away from the masks because we don't know that they work. Plus also they're needed elsewhere. And then as the um, pandemic went on, we discovered... Uh, as, as more research was done um, by scientists actually looking at the effects of masks, there was a, it began to the information began to emerge that actually, um, if you're infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind coronavirus, um, the, the virus behind coronavirus, <laughs> if you're infected with SARS-CoV-2, um, you know, uh, then then if if you wore a mask, then you're um, then, then you're le much less likely to transmit it to someone else. Um, than, uh, and so that's a really useful thing to do with a mask. However, if you wear a mask and you don't have coronavirus, um, then it doesn't necessarily stop you really from becoming infected, if you know what I mean. So the, 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 the sort of narrative around masks changed, which is that if, if you think you're infected or you've been exposed, then you should wear a mask to stop infecting others. So I'm wearing a mask to protect you and you're wearing a mask to protect me. I'm not protecting myself by wearing a mask. That's a bit more complicated, right? But that's emerging research. And so then obviously people were confused by it. Um, there were all sorts of bad actors, can I say, that um, decided that masks were a, a tool to oppress people. This also happened with vaccines a year later. Um, and so as a science communication person, you kind of have to think to yourself, well, what is the truth? Well, the truth is a bit complicated. The truth is that um, yeah, by, by, uh, the, 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 there aren't many masks. We're not sure if they really protect the people wearing them, but they certainly protect people other people if you wear them um that there's some element of control or government intervention that people don't like so all these factors sort of combined together there is no truth about whether masks are good or not you know the fact is that some people will take this information seriously some people won't so what do you do what kind of rules do you have and i think that we saw in we saw what, what we saw with masks is a really good example of what is true with all science which is that knowledge emerges over a long period of time it stumbles into the wrong directions at some point but eventually it gets to a point where we kind of know what it is it takes a lot of time and with masks in covid we just entered we tried to get information out of that sort of pipeline uh, of normal science operation we tried to get information at too early a stage uh, because we needed it and and it was imperfect and things had to change and i guess you know as a science journalist, um, uh, you as a scientist, Shane, you know the science is often gets things wrong, but it self-corrects eventually. But, it, you know, it self-corrects sometimes at a stage where it's too late for the information to be useful. So we, we saw all of the sort of guts of how science was made and the problems with interpreting all the guts um, along the way. We know now that masks work and we know how they work. COVID-19 has spread through tiny droplets People with COVID exhale those in their breath when they cough, sneeze, talk, sing or just breathe. And masks work by reducing the emission of those droplets from your breath. It's source control. Masks also help others by reducing the inhalation of droplets. So if you have COVID, masks slow spread. And if you don't have COVID, masks help to lower the risk of you catching it. Masks are just physical barriers. The material that they're made from is really important. And of course, the where you wear them is also important too.
Things like astronomy, dinosaurs, all of that sort of stuff is fascinating to the public and long may it be, but really politically it's not that important to anyone. So everyone agrees and, and, and they can be wowed by it. But anything that comes close to the human body, health or freedom in some way, um, the via pandemic and lockdowns and stuff, of course, everyone has an opinion and everyone has a view because it matters to them much more, uh, matters, to the, matters to their lives. So the way I approach it is um, is is to be... F um, is to be f so so the way i approach it as a journalist is to approach is the way i approach any story actually which is that um you need to survey the field of information um that, in front of you right and that means taking into account for example you know what a scientist says but also what the person who disagrees with that scientist says and then you have to um i think you have to just be fair with with the with the, with the weight you have to weight the information so so that means you have to be fair and what i mean by that is not being objective uh, i don't think it's possible to be objective even with science even if scientists think you can be objective it's not possible because everyone has a, a view and a vested interest of some sort but to be fair like so take climate change for example which is another sort of slow motion crisis happening right now um you know j just because one person tells me that they don't believe co2 causes warming in the atmosphere um, yeah, sure, I'll listen, but I'm not going to take it as seriously as a hundred scientists who say the opposite. So the the fair way to cover that is to not cover the the the, the crank and and all the person who disagrees and to to, to base the reporting on the on, on the hundred. So it's not only my job to transmit information to readers; it's to transmit this the, the likelihood of that information being correct. But I'm not going to tell you what to think. Um, also, you know. The way I also often will, will cover science stories is that I will take a scientific paper or a finding and ask lots of people who don't know each other what they think of the same thing, who are credible in some way, whether that's because of their institution or what they published before. So, you know, you do this, of course, in science itself. as It's called peer review. And I kind of do the same thing. I, I check. I'm constantly questioning myself, checking myself to make sure that I've not missed anything. And then there are levels of editing at work as well. Where, where I work, there are fact checkers and there are editors who will constantly constantly pick holes in your argument uh, not because they don't like you or maybe that's true but i mean you know but, but the idea is that just can we make this argument as bulletproof as possible as information because it's going to be use, used by our readers in some way and so at the end of that process you what i think you can do is you can say i'm confident that this is a fair picture of what is happening in this particular field uh, of science or anything else and then of course if you get it wrong the, the, the follow-up should be to correct it. That's how you know that you're someone who cares about the truth. So the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process. Um, it, it doesn't stop with the publication. Um, it sh you know, getting something wrong and correcting it properly and acknowledging your errors is just as important. I think that's the only way you can build trust uh, as a journalist. As Alec explained, advice on masks changed. And that change led to uncertainty and, for many people, confusion. But I want to know, did this uncertainty open the door to people who wanted to take advantage of that situation? When it comes to understanding issues of trust in science, philosophers can provide insight. So I spoke to philosopher Heather Douglas for some US context. Yeah, so I think it is uh, was a really horrible, perfect storm of a couple of different things. One was that the initial expert pronouncements on masks were not just wrong, but on the wrong basis, on bases that, you know, were either sort of disingenuous, 
<laughs> and were you know shown to be on different bases later and so the public was like why didn't you tell me that to begin with um or um you know uh just kind of not not grappling fully with the evidence even that was available at the time then combine that with you know a president like president trump who's just i'm not wearing that <laughs> just you know immediately dismissive and for a lot of his followers um sort of ironic for people who claim to want to be so independent they <laughs> they they really take the lead from they're sort of you know maga sheep can i say that <laughs> and we'll just yeah okay follow that president trump hoped to watch spacex make history in florida today but instead he was confronted with the historic and tragic milestone of 100,000 dead americans on his watch more than the total number of U.S. deaths in all wars since World War II, and a far greater death toll than the president predicted just last month. It looks like we'll be at about a 60,000 mark. Even though his own administration recommends Americans wear face coverings to keep the virus from spreading, the president is increasingly mocking those who do, calling it politically correct. Uh, that's right. Well, President Trump, as you said, is on his way to a campaign speech in New Hampshire right now. Just a short while ago, moments before his speech was about to begin, event organizers asked people in the crowd to put on a mask and get this. People in the crowd started booing. Ladies and gentlemen, in accordance with New Hampshire Executive Order 63, please wear your masks. And then... The fact that Americans viewed it as sort of like an impersonal imposition. And instead of saying, like, look, um, there are all kinds of things we do for public good that also help protect us. Like, um, we chlorinate drinking water, we treat it. <laughs> and, and we have a speed limit signs and we require driver's licenses. Right, that's a huge imposition. You have to go take a test, and you have to drive, and you have to like renew it, and they have to get a picture, and it's always crappy. We require this both, you know, for personal protection. You don't get to drive until you do it competently, and also for public safety. There are all kinds of these public goods. Americans are really bad at talking about public goods, and it seems like um, there's always a subset of any given society that is very suspicious of public goods. Some resent any action to curtail the disease, even taking issue with those like us for wearing masks. Why are you angry if I wear a mask? Because you're wearing a mask out of stupidity and you're further pushing the agenda. And the agenda is the deep state, which wants to control all of us and have us living in fear and thinking that you're contaminated. It is false narrative. And when you wear a mask, which you can certainly do, you are further pushing the agenda that is condemning all of us and keeps us living in a state of terror. She's not alone in those views. So thinking about the ordinary examples where we do that um, and saying like, it's just like getting a driver's license, just wear a mask. So science advice can be tricky when it affects our freedoms, when it limits where we can go and mandates that we cover our faces when we're with others. As you can imagine, the person giving that advice matters greatly. You'd want to trust them. And of course, we can all recall the prominent scientists and public health figures that were every day on our TVs during the pandemic, advising governments and the public. What makes them trustworthy then? <laughs> the big <Right>. question. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you want your expert to be trustworthy, not just trusted. Um, 
And what makes someone trustworthy, in my view, is a combination of different attributes. One is that they have expertise. And there are different kinds of expertise. Some kinds of expertise we can just assess on how successful they are at doing things. Like a really good expert car mechanic fixes the car. And even if they can't explain why, it doesn't matter <laughs> because the car runs better, right? That's just fantastic. But the kind of expertise we need in the midst of global pandemics or the kind of expertise we need to deal with complex issues like climate change or ecological issues, you can't just say, oh, they had this expertise, it was deployed and it was successful. They're dealing with systems where there are a ton of confounders. Um, even if someone intervenes in a way that turns out in hindsight to be exactly right, you might not be able to pick out the signal from the noise. These are really complicated situations. And so instead of depending on the raw success of the expertise, you instead have to depend upon their ability to make judgments and explain what judgments they're making in a complex terrain. So when you talk to an expert, you end up finding out about things you didn't quite realize you need to think about, like how aerosols work and what sort of like particle size moves how far in the atmosphere. Who knew we had to think about that? Um, but the expert lets you know, and that gives you a sense of confidence that, oh, they're bringing considerations I didn't even know I should think about, and they're explaining what's going on. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the expert has to be tied into a community of other experts that's continually arguing with them and making them hone their expertise against different ideas and different views so that what they're producing isn't just the person alone in a tower producing something and then popping out with it and then we're supposed to trust it. It needs to be done inside of a community of other people who are going to give the expert a hard time if they think they said or, or doing something wrong. And then finally, there need to be shared values. And they need to have shared values because you want the expert to care about what you care about so that they ask the questions that you would ask if you had their expertise and so that they would weigh the evidence the way you would weigh it if you had their expertise. And that's why signaling that you have certain values is really important for uh, the public to actually trust. So those are the three things that I think are really central for trustworthy expertise. Presence of expertise, um, being in contact with and collaborating with and arguing with a, a, a well-functioning expert community that hopefully has diverse voices operating within it and shared values. Trust in scientific expertise is clearly complex. I wonder how scientists like me can improve on how we communicate what we do and how we do it. If science communication is going to be more than just attracting attention to our papers and our grants, we might have to do things a little differently. How might we operate in a more fluid space where the science on something is changing? You, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, you brought me back to that uh, stage of the pandemic where we were all trying to figure out uh, through listening to experts uh, as, as how the virus worked. And um, the advice on mask wearing in, in Ireland, where I live, changed, um, you know, from the early stages of, well, we're not sure if it, if it makes a big difference. You might not wear it correctly, etc. And then it settled down, you know, but in, in that space, there was some disagreement and, and it was legitimate disagreement. Do, do you think that in any way led to the, um, like, the, the, led to the situation where masks became contentious or was that something completely different? I think it fed into it, but I think in particular, the reasons for why 
experts didn't advocate for the public to wear masks initially were not that concerned with the good of the public. So <laughs> there are things like, we don't trust you to actually wear it properly. <laughs> well, that's um, a great way to undermine your <laughs> trustworthiness with the, with the public. Or we want to actually keep all the masks for healthcare workers, which at the time was probably the right decision for like the, the medical grade masks. Um, in the sort of desperate situation in so many hospitals in April and May of 2020 when things were really awful. But they should have been really upfront about that and not said, oh, well, masks aren't going to be effective for the public. No, they should have said like, well, it would be effective for the public, but unfortunately we desperately need them in the hospitals or we're going to have an entire hospital system collapse, which we nearly had anyway, but it would have been a lot worse if we didn't have adequate protective gear. But then to find out later, because it came out that that was the reason. Well, okay, well, then you've dissembled to the public. You haven't been honest with them. They're going to hold that against you. And that's, that's I think, part of what went wrong. It, that, first of all, that's totally to be expected with an emergent virus, right? That expertise is not going to be well thought out, well worked out. Experts were still pursuing and asking the right questions, but the knowledge base wasn't there. That is typical in cases of emergency. And I think that is why we need to teach science differently in high school and grade school, um, because this idea that experts have the answers is not what's going on when you have an emerging crisis. Experts make well-informed, the best-informed judgments you could make, they still might not have crucial pieces of information available to them. They're going to get them before anyone else, <laughs> right? And they yeah. did coronavirus, but they might, they don't have it in hand. And so that, we still need to trust experts even when the expertise isn't, you know, as complete as we'd like it to be, as finished as we'd like it to be is really important and understanding science as a process that is in some sense always unfinished but especially when something new is on the on the table is really important for understanding what the nature of expertise is in these contexts yeah i think there are lots of things we can learn for complex future science communication well a couple of a couple of uh, things that come to the top of my head we found that uh, people really like enjoyed data. They enjoyed information dashboards. They were accessing them all the time. I mean, of course, there's a particular public health need um, in 2021 and 2022. But actually, um, you know, people used it and they used it for all of their uh, whatever they wanted to use it for. Uh, and for, with climate change, there's there's not huge amounts of collected data out there. For example, if you want to know how much energy the world uses um accurately it's actually very hard to get that information but it's really important information uh, if you want to set public policy in a, in a city or a country or anything like that the data exists actually but it's just hidden behind paywalls and people won't let you have it whereas with covid what we found was that by the economist for example um the new york times 
And one or two media organisations built the best dashboards, I would say, of information around COVID, which governments were using in the end because they couldn't standardise their own data sources and things. So, you know, we, we had all this information and it was a public service, I think, to have all that stuff out there. And I think that journalists, communicators can pull these things together and build stories around data in a way that really resonate with people and people can actually use uh, to, to improve their lives for climate change. Another thing is that... Um, COVID really, really showed that if a set of governments wants to do something, they can literally magic money out of the air to do it. OK, um, so let's never have this argument again that there's not enough money. I mean, really, the scales of money and uh, correctly that were released because of, the, of COVID never... You should never back down when a government now tells you, oh, we can't afford to pay for that new nuclear power station or invest in renewables for the next 30 years. I mean, it's just it's just it just puts a lie to all of that. Um, yeah, I, I think that also complexity itself. People are interested in details in a way that I think um, perhaps we had news, newsrooms hadn't appreciated before. Um, we, Like I said, we wrote lots of stories, did lots of podcasts that really went into the weeds of bits of science or bits of economics or other things that you kind of don't normally get a chance to explain because you, you don't have the space but people really really responded well to it they wanted to learn they wanted to be educated and i think that you know in in, in this world of social media and um, false information flying around everywhere i mean what it shows to me is that perhaps there's a group of people and you know we know we don't want to just serve those people we want to serve everyone but there is a group of people that will spend the time if you give the information to them in a, in a sort of meaningful way that will use that information and they will they will want detail and more complexity and more transparency and i think that that's also a promising thing that i've learned from from covid If we are to learn anything from the ways in which we communicated on mask wearing during the pandemic, it might be to treat people, all people, as capable of dealing with complexity. To recognise that people are eager to learn about things like COVID that matter greatly to them. That the body of experts giving advice might be more explicit about the processes that are informing their expert positions and that they might not be afraid to talk about the limits of their knowledge and we might not be afraid to hear them. When it came to wearing masks during COVID, there were a multitude of expert and non-expert voices speaking loudly. On top of that, scientists were figuring out the science in real time and the advice kept changing. In complex spaces like this, where the public are continuously figuring out who to believe, proxies like Alec and other quality journalists really show their value to society. In the next episode, we're going to explore the HIV AIDS crisis and the failures of science policymakers. The Trust Race is supported by Peritia, an EU-funded project investigating public trust and expertise. Grant number 870883. This series is produced by Sean and Morris, and you can find me on Twitter at Shane D. Burden.